Hello, and welcome to Living a Culture of Life podcast by Human Life International. I'm your host, Colleen, and I'm joined today by Father Michael Deusterhaus. Welcome, Father. Thank you for coming out today. Good afternoon. It's good to have you here. And we're going to be diving into the topic of annulments again, because our last episode on that was very popular. So I wanted to give a little bit more of an insider's look as a perspective of someone who's been involved in this process many times, Father. I was hoping that you could share a little bit of your knowledge of the system. Could you just just start by saying what your role was? So, uh, Father Dustraus, a priest of the Diocese of Arlington. I am not a representative of the Diocese of Arlington. I am giving my personal impressions of my pastoral ministry of over 33 years which sadly has involved a lot of tribunal work. Um, And it wasn't by plan, it was just by happenstance. Uh, When I was in seminary in the 80s, Bishop Keating, God rest his soul, uh, made it very clear that all the priests of the diocese would receive a sufficient training in seminary, which we all did, so that we could at least assist in presenting and preparing cases. And so the parishioner comes to you, they go, I have this situation. You help them with the administrative stuff, gathering sacramental records, uh, you usually do a cover letter to kind of organize it, and you submit the case, and you, uh, when it goes forward, you get named procurator slash advocate. And so it's like being like a British barrister. Uh, it's not so much uh, Perry Mason, uh, but you do actually do go to court. Okay. And uh, with them, I'll come back to that later. For a variety of reasons, because of my assignments, and again, I spent... 25 of my 33 years as priest in uniform, a mixture of active duty and reserve. Uh, and so I have presented cases, many cases, uh, before the Diocese of Arlington, but also the military archdiocese. I've also presented cases in front of Baltimore, did one. I wasn't present, but I had to submit it down to San Juan, Puerto Rico. I had to do that in Spanish. I've done Chicago. I've submitted cases in Ottawa, Canada. And a lot of this had to do with, until only a few years ago, if a marriage took place in location A, and most of the people still live in location A, that's where you would do the annulment. Okay. Now, the process has always been allowed that, let's say, you got married in Chicago, you're now here in Virginia, and your ex-spouse is here in Virginia, and there's witnesses here. Our tribunal contacts, their tribunal says, hey, can we take the case? And in most cases, it gets passed over. One of the things Pope Benedict was concerned about was, there were certain tribunals, which remains nameless, South America, um, that um, just would not release cases. Mm-hmm. And also, there were other concerns about these tribunals. And so I had a case of both the, the petitioner, that's the person who is asking for the, the respondent, is the ex-spouse. All the witnesses, they all were here in, in Virginia, but they got married in Venezuela where they grew up. Mm-hmm. And Venezuela would not release the case. And so we had to submit everything down there. It took several years. It was very difficult. Well, Pope Benedict put many things in motion. And like any pontiff, they put things in motion, and then the next pope reaps it. So under Pope Francis, uh, there was a lot of reforms to the code that were needed. And so I don't want to bore people, but I'm going to back up. (laughs) Up until 1916, church law was like British common law. It was not in one spot. Okay. You would cite an 18th century decree, an 8th century pope. It was all over the place. And so they tapped this one priest to codify it. And he started codifying, got done by 1817. It was the first time they had, we had a code of canon law. And we used that uh, for many decades, but it had its limitations. Again, one good priest put that together. 
approved by the bishops, popes. And then, um, most people don't understand this, but when John, St. John XXIII, Pope John XXIII called Second Vatican Council, liturgy, which people talk about, was going to be on the list. But the main thing was reforming the Code of Canon Law because there were gaps. It took him 20 years, several committees of dozens of people to reform the Code of Canon Law, and most of it was the same. And it came out in 1983, legally in 1984. And that, in many cases, helped organize the process. But even from 84 on, there were amendments, there were, like anything in law, the jurisprudence develops. And so um, one of the things, with especially the canons around how you investigate a marriage, uh, were kind of confusing. And so they were totally rewritten. Um, and promulgated under Francis, but that that whole process under Signatura was being done under Pope Benedict. Okay. And so let's just talk about what, what, what we're dealing with here. I'm going to use a little story. Okay. In the 1990s, I was an active duty as a chaplain, and I served most of my time, almost all my career, with the Marine Corps as a chaplain, which is why. My life is so messed up. And so, no, I love my Marines. And so I was in Okinawa, Japan. I was supposed to be there for 11 months, so they kept me there for three years because the Marine Corps <laughs> counts differently. Uh, one year, one year. I would If it wasn't for 9-11, I'd probably be still in Japan. Um, anyway, one of the biggest things in the, in, in the uh, Marine Corps is the Marine Corps ball. The Marine Corps birthday is the 10th of November. Uh, the ball is prom meets a wedding party meets a Filipino baptismal party. Uh, on crack. It just, it's this huge celebration. Everyone has to dress uniforms on. There's a, a historical presentation. There's a big sit down dinner. Uh, there's a speaker. And the big thing is they bring out the cake and the commanding officer cuts a piece of the cake and the oldest, youngest spring present take the piece of cake while they read the decree creating the Marine Corps in 1775. And the oldest Marine takes a bite and he passes the youngest Marine, this whole passing on traditions. So in 97, I was with third maintenance battalion and supporting third of force with a support group. And when they were having this great ball and everyone's having a great time and they wheeled out this cake and it was three tiers. The bottom tier was two and a half by four feet. And it was another tier and another tier. And it had 222 candles in it, big four inch bread candles for every year of the Marine Corps lit. And the Eagle globe and anchor, the symbol of the Marine Corps was done in frosting. It was just a gorgeous cake. And I was like, oh, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. <laughs> And so they, they, they go over to it, and in the corner, of one on the bottom, they didn't have any candles because they were going to cut there. Mm -hmm. So we have the cake. The cake goes back in the kitchen, then they bring out pieces for everyone to get. Now, not everyone gets their birthday ball on the 10th. They usually start around the 2nd, going up to the 10th. There's like a lottery system, but, you know, everyone uses the same place, the, what it's called the organized clubs, between there and the chow hall. So anyway, we, there's like eight or nine Marine Corps balls in about a week and a well, it's November 11th, Veterans Day, and we gotta, we kind of get a half day off. We get to sleep in. Uh, some of my Marines definitely had to sleep in because they were partying. Anyway, I was out PTing and I'm taking a run. And for some reason, I thought, I'm going to cut a different path. And I cut behind the chow hall on the, on the steps up to the club. And there was the cake being hosed down by a PFC. It was all wood with holes drilled in it to hold the candles in place. And I went up and the staff sergeant came out and went, Chaplain, Chaplain, don't say anything. Don't say anything. I said, and it's like half the frosting has been washed off. I said, staff sergeant, 
Father, I had eight balls in seven days. And if we, it, it took five Marines and myself eight hours just to make this artificial one. And then in the corner was a nine inch by nine inch cutout. Where they could cut the cake. So they would put in the fresh cake there, fix the frosting, and they would roll that baby. But I said, but Staff Sergeant, I had a piece of cake two nights ago. Oh, that's sheet cake, Father. We can crank that out like no one's business. We just like, but no, I had, I had a, there was a mark for a candle. Oh, we just took candle and just kind of mark. It was a whole psychological operation. It was a big psyop. But so, long story, but did you go to the ball? It was a beautiful ball. Did you see the cake? It was a gorgeous cake. It even had candles. Did you go to the wedding? It was a beautiful wedding. It's gorgeous wedding. See the bridegroom? It looked great. Hey, Daddy even had kids later. You went through a wedding. You went through a ceremony. The annulment process is scraping the frosting of life and finding out whether you have a cake or you frosted a brick. In order to have a true marriage, I brought some notes along because I had to write a very long paper on when I did my doctoral thesis on this. I'll make sure I get all my words correct. Very specific definition. In order for the sacrament of marriage, sacrament of marriage to exist, there needs to be a baptized free man and a baptized free woman who freely exchange vows in the presence of the church's clergy, and at least two witnesses who intend to enter into a bond that is permanent, lifelong union, open to children, and exclusive in nature. The couple must also know each other well enough to form a family and who understand that marriage is not a private contract, but a public sacred covenant that exists not only to sanctify the couple, but also the church as a whole. Okay. I did, I had three, three credit graduate classes just on that sentence. Wow. Because you have to parse the whole thing out. Mm -hmm. So a Catholic marries a Catholic in the Catholic church. The Catholic church says we have the jurisdiction if one party believes the marriage not to be sacramental. Okay. But the church also claims every other marriage. So if a non-Catholic Christian comes to us and says, I want to become a Catholic. Mm -hmm. I was married before. I've remarried. We claim we can have jurisdiction over that. I'm unbaptized. I'm from Pongo Pongo. I've come to America. Now, the church doesn't go around randomly investigating marriages. Now, let's go through the telephone mm -hmm. book and look into their marriage. No. <laughs> someone has to ask. Someone has to petition. Mm -hmm. um, as you were in the last podcast, and I think... Uh, gentleman's well-known writer, Mr. Clark, as an outsider looking in, it can be a very odd process. Mm -hmm. And the problem, and I understand some of his criticisms, and he wrote, I think, and I read one of his articles, it was like a precy of his book, of why do we have to wait for have a decree of divorce? Well, we're in America. The Catholic Church does not have control over marriage. Mm -hmm. Now, until a couple, 15 years ago, the church had total control over marriage in Ireland. Because there was no civil divorce. Mm. You got married by the church, and if you got annulled, the church took care of it. Catholic marriages were not legal in most states until 1860s. They weren't legal in Virginia until the 1920s. Really? Oh, no. There's some great history books where you go to Winchester, north of us. You'd have your nuptial mass, and the wedding partner get into a carriage in 1890 with the priest, and you go up to the up to the uh, Potomac River, get on a barge, go over to Maryland, where they were legal, and you would exchange the vows and you would come back. Okay? So, and interracial marriages weren't legal in Virginia until 1968. Well, guess what? Some Catholics ain't white. And so all these Catholic marriages had to go over to D.C. or Maryland to get married. Friends of, A friend of mine growing up, his dad was Filipino, and he got married in 67 in D.C., even though he lived in Springfield, Virginia. So, 
we have a situation where we are in a civil situation where until the marriage does not exist civilly, the church cannot say it did not exist sacramentally. Uh, it's a difficult situation to be. I think it, it's sad because, as Mr. Clark makes it very clearly, the catechism makes it very clear, that divorce is, is barely tolerated, only in the most extreme situations. But we live in an age that's disposable, and people dispose of everything, including their marriages. So that's kind of lays the groundwork. Okay, what, what's going on here? Um, most cases, again, again, people come to me and it's already fallen apart. Mm-hmm. Right? I've always, early on, you try to see if there could be some sense of reconciliation. And in 99 out of 100 cases, I'm dealing with the wounded party. Yeah, I'm dealing with a person who was abused emotionally, personally, uh, abandoned, um, many times taken advantage of. And then it's years later, and they're trying to get their lives together. Those who are, are solid in their faith try to resolve those issues before they remarry. Many times they've gone and remarried outside the church. So now they're sitting in a civil marriage, cannot receive any of the sacraments, but they have a previous marriage that is valid until proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I have to take a shovel and dig into all this chaos. Um. When they talk about the numbers of annulments going up, mm-hmm. it's not an accurate picture. Really? So, for example, back in the 60s, there was a, a thing, comment made that, you know, well, Frank Sinatra got two annulments because he paid money. No, he had two civil marriages. If you're a Catholic and you get married outside the church, I need five pieces of paper in four days and I can declare that no. Is that because Catholics need to get married in, in a sacramental marriage right. in the church? So if it's a civil marriage under a justice of the peace, then it wouldn't be considered valid. Right. So okay. I just prove you're Catholic, civil marriage, civil divorce, it's gone. Okay. okay. But that's an annulment. Um, there are cases called ligaments, which are that you, the party you had been married for had been married before. There's a, like where we get the word ligament from. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's a, that's a documentary sort of thing. Boom. Yeah. I think that's what happens in um, Brideshead. Because Julia mm-hmm. right. and Rex get married, and right. Rex had been married before, right. so that would have been a really easy annulment. Because right. Rex was not free to marry. Yeah. Because of also, they got married outside the church, and Julia was Catholic, so that's yeah, like yeah, double yeah. grounds for annulment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the but the basic standard formal case is, mm-hmm. and let's stay with Catholics or uh, first, a Catholic got married in the church. What has to be demonstrated? Now, the day after you got married, your spouse can get a become a heroin addict. That's not going to nullify the marriage. Mm-mm. A year after you got married, the spouse becomes unfaithful. That doesn't validate the marriage. At the time of the exchange of vows, did you know each other well enough to form a family? Okay. So you have to know about that person. And did you understand, again, you're entering into a sacrament. It's a covenant. And like I said, open to children, permanent, exclusive. So is one reason, do you think that annulments are, there's more of them these days, is because Catholics have fallen away and are getting married outside the church or they're marrying people who were previously married? That's part of it. But also, until until the last five years, most of my annulments were Protestant marriages. Okay. I was dealing with Joe Protestant who wanted to marry Jane Catholic and he had a previous bond. Or Joe wanted to become a Catholic. Mm-hmm. I'm dealing currently with a case in my own parish where the person in question had two previous marriages. Wow. Both were very brief. One I was able to treat as legomen. The other one has to be a formal case. So, again, we just don't say, well, marriage didn't take place. 
And so the form for a Catholic has to be without, you know, the, 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 there's always exceptions, but you know, I've done a wedding in a hospital once, but that was because it's, it's extreme. But you get married in a physical church. You can't be married in, the, in out in the parking lot or in, in a barn. And there's, there's a priest or a deacon. At the time when you exchanged the vows, did you understand what you were doing? And did you know who you were marrying? So when I was a young priest back in the 90s, a lot of my uh, gnomons were of marriages of the early 70s. And one of the grounds uh, is uh, fraud and deception, mm -hmm. that you hid something from your spouse. And back then often was you had a serious drinking problem, but they didn't know about it. Well, then mm -hmm. I didn't really know you as a person. I had one case where the bride in question had serious psychiatric problems, had been institutionalized twice in her teen years, and the parents lied on the affidavits that there was no reason she shouldn't get married. And when I started doing the, the marriage, lasted all of seven weeks because mm -hmm. she totally smiled. Uh, uh, and the guy thought she was this wonderful girl. Parents lied through their teeth. And when I did the investigation, they admitted, well, of course we lied. We want her out of the house. <laughs> With the first guy we could find, we dumped him on. Uh, uh, and then we got, well, you know, and, you know, and then I've had cases, sadly, not enormous, but where I did a lot of weddings in my first assignment and uh, had this couple show up and they were not from my parish. The bride's aunt was, and they seemed nice enough. They seemed mid twenties, mm -hmm. but I got this odd vibe and I started asking questions. Well, I was the fifth priest in seven weeks they had seen and the other four said they wouldn't marry them. Well, both had serious mental health issues. Now you mm -hmm. can still get married. Yeah. But I need a letter from your psychiatrist. And their psychiatrist wouldn't write it. They said they don't have what it takes to commit to a marriage. Mm. And it was very sad. Yeah. Then I found out they both met in rehab, which is probably not the best place to find a spouse. <laughs> just personal opinion. <laughs> uh, you yeah, can, you can check me on that, you know. I just Yeah. But the problem is it's see, so let's critique the system. Again, I'm in the Diocese of Arlington, one of the mm -hmm. leading tribunals we we dot our eyes and cross our T's a thousand ways. The problem is we're Americans. We're very organized. We know how to do paperwork. So first off, we were the first nation to have standardized forms instead of just everything along hand. Then we organized those standardized forms. And now we've digitized them so you can go online and download a PDF and fill in all the blanks and crank out your petition and your narrative and your fact sheet and boom, 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 boom. We can just crank it right out. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're very organized in that front. We also, um, all the annulments have already been written. What does that mean? Every decision declaring a marriage null is in that book. That's a big book. And they digitized all this. So when you get a decree saying that your marriage is declared null, put one up here. Dear so-and-so, and there's a format of a letter, da-da-da, we're going to send this to you, mental impairment. All this is it's just, you know, we have it all on computer, and we just cut and paste. And then we fit in the facts of this particular case. Interesting. So we're, we're very well organized. And so everything's done appropriately. I mean, this is, mm -hmm. this is a great system, right? But um, we're overly efficient, to put it nicely. And so it becomes a paper chase. Also, we're a minority diocese, so 
Joe comes to me. Marriage is, is gone. There are good grounds. I, I've never submitted a case I didn't believe that there were grounds for. I just don't yeah. throw paperwork in. So we have very good grounds. So have you had couples come to you to ask for that and you look at it and you say you don't have a case? And- what I'll do is like, you got to dig down. You got to find me something. Because I'm not, I'm not going to wait. So you understand, if I present a case mm-hmm. and there's nothing there, they're just going to give it back to me. This is another thing about, oh, no, they'll say, well, 90% of annulments are granted. Unlike civil court where anyone can file, mm-hmm. in church court, you can file. And they can look at it and go, take it back. So they only accept cases that have any hope. That so was we, kind so of we, what I assumed. Yeah, so we vet out. So it kind of kind of changes the numbers. It's almost like being a teacher looking over a term paper like, no, go write it again. Well, almost everyone's getting A's, Well, but 20% of the papers were turned back. Yeah. So um, but anyway, we've put together all the paperwork. We've submitted it. And then in our tribunal, and only a minority sadly do this, we go in for what's called a hearing, which is basically an interview. We're at okay. a conference table. One of the priests who's going to be one of the judges is on one side. I'm with the person who's a petitioner. There's a priest operating basically a recording device and doing all the paperwork uh, called the notary. Uh, all the young priests, when you're newly ordained, you have to a couple times, uh, well, well, throughout the year, a couple times a year, you have to go in and spend the day working the tribunal just mm-hmm. so you understand the process. And yeah. someone, someone's got to be, be the ecclesial notary. 45 minute to an hour long conversation on all this paperwork you submitted mm-hmm. to kind of narrow in on, okay, what was actually going on? It's not accusatory. It's not like civil court. And all that gets transcribed. Well, the, the respondent, that is the ex-spouse gets contacted. They have, they get a priest assigned to them, whether they want to or not to advocate for their, mm-hmm. you know, because again, we're presuming the marriage is true. Yeah. So we have to look out for the rights of the other party. The vast majority of the time, the ex-spouse does not care, especially when it's a non-Catholic marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, and probably just like, why are you doing this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, this and is the, Catholics but, are strange. <laughs> well, and so we, but they, they, again, our diocese does a great job of due diligence of contacting, trying to contact the ex-spouse, uh, and verifying these things. Oh. But the whole process is, we are again, we're trying to scrape away the frost and see was was there truly a, a, enough ingredients to make a cake. So you've submitted all this paperwork, you had the hearing, and then you get a qu- three questionnaires. You have to give the three different witnesses, people who knew you before you got married, mm-hmm. with similar questions that you've already asked. And they don't have to know everything, but this is where some of the evidence comes in. You know, I had a case years ago. The marriage took place in another state. Uh, the woman was here. And uh, the marriage didn't last long, and sadly it ended in physical abuse. It was a very, very sad and this is like 10 years after the divorce, and she finally wanted to resolve this and because she was thinking about starting the date again, but she wanted and then And so the first thing I do as a priest, when someone comes in, I just let them talk for an hour. Mm-hmm. No, most people have never talked about that. I mean, it's the worst part of their life. It's a broken marriage. Yeah. It's not, this is not something. So I'm the first person a lot of times. So they just start dumping everything out. You know? And you just have to quietly sit and listen and then back your head be listening for key phrases. So after she's laid everything out and I got some paperwork, I said, I want your younger brother to be a witness. She goes, Father, when I got married, I was 19 and he was 17. He refused to come to the wedding. I said, that's right. He knew that he that your husband-to-be was a son of a bitch. <laughs> he told you not to marry. <laughs> yeah. And then after you moved to Ohio and he physically abused you for the third time, he got in a truck and drove from New York City to Ohio, picked you up. And the baby and drove you back home. He loves you. Okay. 
The fact that he, younger than you, said she, you should not be marrying this man is a great example that you were blind to what you're getting yourself into. Um, so would the grounds for annulment in that case be that the woman didn't know her husband well enough to be able to raise a family? Would it go to that phrase? In that, the that was part of it. Part of it was also uh, he had a drinking problem. Uh, he also... Uh, that she didn't know about? Didn't know about. Okay. And also uh, in a very extreme situation, um, it's very rare, but I was able to get the medical records. Two weeks prior to the uh, marriage, he snuck off and got a vasectomy. Oh, which is against so he the wasn't good. open to life. Yeah. Got I mean, it. like, like that's, and that, when we had that, that was there, I mean, that's, that's hard to, to prove. That's very, very hard to prove. Yeah. But the point being is you're trying to help people untie the knots of their lives. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have this nice process. And it's not, we're looking for loopholes so we can get this annulment to. Well, so here's the problem. Okay. Many tribunals do not do hearings. Okay. You just mail paperwork in and they mail you back questionnaires. And things go through the mail. And then one day you might get a letter from the church saying your previous marriage is annulled. And it might as well be, I hate to say this, a Catholic divorce. Because it just purely becomes a paper shuffle. There's no one actually encountering the person. I mean, this is a pastoral activity. Okay. Um, I mean, it, it, canon law is under pastoral theology. Okay. okay. There's dogma. There's scripture. There's morals. This is it. We're caring for people's souls. Yeah. Because the last canon in the Code of Canon Law is all the law exists is ultimately for the salvation of souls. Yeah. So my criticism of especially North America uh, tribunals is many of them, as long as you shove enough paperwork in, something comes out the back end. Now, this is where, well, can we trust the decisions? Yeah, because that was a yeah. big one that came up to me after yeah. the last podcast. Right. Is that something I started wondering? So I always use this as a personal phrase. They are conditionally infallible. Okay. <laughs> In that, if the judge or judges, depending on the type of case, you could have one judge, you could have several. Um, it's going to fall on their eternal salvation. Because they're saying a sacrament didn't take place. Mm-hmm. I want to give you a most extreme example. I am going to go to your parish church, go into the sacristy, get the tabernacle key, open up the tabernacle, take out the sabor, and go, this isn't the blessed sacrament. It's not consecrated. We're going to put this on the shelf. We're saying a sacrament didn't take place. This is not something we deal with lightly. The problem is I believe there are many people who have gotten a divorce mentality, mm-hmm. uh, many people who have studied canon law, uh, and you read you know, these conferences and Again, Americans have the this you know, Canon Law Society, and they sit and talk. And I think many people are, are well intentioned, but some of these people, they're just turning a handle crank, turning mm-hmm. a handle crank. Um, and one of the biggest criticisms, and a legitimate one, of all the various grounds, which is lack of knowledge, fraud, fear, internal fear, exterior fear, deception. There's all sorts of different things that could be. Most cases, sadly, in the United States, run <laughs> everything through Canon 1095, Paragraph 3, lack of due discretion, which is a very fungible thing. Mm-hmm. And so I have a psychologist interview after the hearing, and we, inter- we have the evidence from your friends and brothers and sisters, and I'm going to determine as the judge, which is a very difficult thing to do, and that's why I'm not a judge, thank God, praise Jesus. I'll present cases, but not... <laughs> Someone else, I'm too far. I'm in the Shenandoah Valley. I'm too far away from the court anyways. <laughs> um, but 
I can't tell you the number of times I've presented cases and listed one, two, and three for grounds, and suddenly, well, we're going to put 1095 paragraph three. And it's it, it's been overused. And so, again, another visual aid. There is an American <coughs> woman, very exceptional lady, who got her doctorate in canon law from Sante Croce. And this is a adaptation of her doctoral thesis. And to give you an idea of the weight of this tome and its importance, Mrs. Howell, Jeffrey Howell, uh, Cardinal Burke wrote the preface. Wow. The forward, okay. Yeah. This entire book basically goes into the use of paragraph 1095, paragraph 3, and its abuses. So, if some judge is just playing loose and fast, well, I got enough paperwork and I feel confident they sign off. Well, I as the Catholic, when I get the decree from the church saying my marriage is declared, no, you have the, you're free to get married. But, mm -hmm. but if the priest didn't do his job well, you might actually, we don't know until eternity. But you as a layperson, you're, you're in the good. The responsibilities lifted off your shoulders because someone in authority made a statement. And, and the tribunal process was worked through. Mm -hmm. um, and I get worried just because I have priest friends across the country. Uh, and I hear stories about other, other tribunals that it becomes a paper chase. Um, and I don't want to name any particular tribunal because, again, unless you're on the inside working out, you know. Um, and, again, a lot of the numbers are cooked. Like, let's say you have a good parish. Mm-hmm. And I, so remember the new evangelization, one of the many failed initiatives, the church does this about every four years, we have a new initiative, we fail. We have a bunch of conferences and meetings, we, we hire people, we have a Dawson office, we put things in the papers, and then nothing happens. And then we wait four years, and we have a new initiative, and then, you know, so I just say proclaim the gospel, just get back to work. Um, but anyway, let's say you actually did the new evangelization. Okay. And let's say you have 40 people in your RCA class. 40 people, right? And none of them are Catholics who never, you know, sometimes a lot of times Catholics didn't get confirmed to go to RCA because mm -hmm. these are all non-Catholics, baptized or unbaptized people. I can tell you for a fact that at least 15 of those 40 are going to need to work from the tribunal. In today's day and age, if you round up that many, they're going to have previous marriages. Because of the sexual revolution. Uh, that and divorce mentality. Divorce mentality, a thousand things. Well, what so there are people in my own parish who have been waiting to enter the church for a couple of years until we resolve their previous bonds. Mm -hmm. And then we're not alone. Again, I have a priest friend in another diocese in a huge parish where they actually were doing evangelization. And it got to the point where one of the permanent deacons, the parish had, he had his regular day job as most deacons do. They had him quit his day job. The parish hired him full-time paying a professional salary just to deal with the tribunal work. Wow. Because they had so many cases. Yeah. Um, and part of the, the, the time of it is you got to listen to the person. You know, it isn't just filling out paperwork. What was going on? Why did you choose to get married? Again, a lot of my marriages from the seven, 60s and 70s back in the day, especially on the women's behalf, they just wanted to get out of the house and away from their, uh, an abusive family situation. Uh, a lot of guys, uh, the classic one, they got their girlfriend pregnant. Classic line, I had to do the right thing. Okay. Well, have the baby. Mm -hmm. Then maybe get married or put the child up for adoption. But 
and it's not exclusive and you can't hang all your coats on that hook. But if you got married just because she was pregnant, that's going to consider a type of force or fear. And there's also the flip side, not so much today because no one cares and more and more children are born outside of marriage, but say you back up to the 50s, 60s. If you were a college girl and you came home pregnant, you were married. You got yourself married like within six weeks. You know, it was just done with. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to ask how free that was. Did you enter into the, would you, just because you were emotionally attached or sexually attracted to someone is not the best basis for permanent marriage. How does contraception um, play into that in today's day and age with the openness to children? Well, see, the problem is proving. Like I've had people say, well, throughout our entire marriage, we contracepted. Do you got video evidence every night? I mean, you know. Okay. So. You know, yeah, it'd be, it'd be, that is one of the, it'll be discussed and it's definitely one of the things that we'll look at. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is very, that against the good of children, that rare situation, I'll tell you that case the guy had a vasectomy, is, is it's very difficult to prove. Okay. Very difficult to prove. Um, because basically, once you're married and you spend one night under the same roof, the church presumed the marriage has been consummated. Mm-hmm. Now, the contraception thing, what it's doing there is one of the reasons, number, so you, you should do a couple podcasts. You should reach out to some people who have been writing about this. The number of people getting married has dropped off so precipitously in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. That's why we have it. If it wasn't for illegal immigration, America has a negative birth rate. Yeah. yeah. Demographic winter. Yeah. It, and it's happened across the world right now. No one's paying attention. Um, but why do you get married? Well, to have a family life. Why do you have family? Well, we want to have children. Why do you have children? Because I believe and hope in the future. And people don't. People have given up. Um, and I think, and I, I don't want to, I want to deal with this. Contraception is an issue. The biggest elephant in the room, destroying men and why they're not getting married and no one wants to talk about is 35% of the internet. Yeah. Which is pornography. But also 35% of the internet is Netflix. And they mirror each other. Think of the phrase that got coined several years ago. Oh, the series came out on Netflix. I'm going to binge watch it this weekend. So you're going to sit there hours watching one show after the next. What is binging? That's gluttony. That's a sin. <laughs> okay. And so, whether, so it may not even be anything impure, but you are totally enthralled by technology. Mm-hmm. And because of the, uh, you know, I grew up as a kid in the 70s, 80s. Yeah. We still had the old computer lab when I was in college seminary, and there was these big hunking devices with little d- discs that carried no data by today's standards, you know, and there were seven channels on the television. It wasn't that we were, you know, had higher morals in the 70s, 80s. We just had fewer temptations, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, two clicks. It's all out of there. And so, and there's been so much been written uh, on about this uh, because so many men are, I mean, impaired. Mentally impaired to enter into a bond of marriage because their notion of how to relate to the opposite sex is totally messed up. And if they had an addiction to pornography that they didn't tell their spouse about when they got married, that can become grounds possible. It can be. It's the same as like a drinking problem that she didn't know about. It's something that she knew about. The jurisprudence on that is still emerging. Okay. But I know I know of cases that that has been one of the key grounds. Okay. This is a random question, but have you heard about how? birth control, like hormonal birth control affects who women are attracted to? Yes. Oh, of course. Could yeah. that be grounds in that it affects how well they know each other? Or is that uh, a little bit more it, it's, iffy? It, yeah. Well, it's a little more iffy. But things, how well, how long did you date? Mm-hmm. Like simple. I had, I've had uh, two cases where I was able to prove the couple never dated before they got married. 
They just met each other and decided to get married. One was a military couple. Uh, and they were both in the same school. It was a nine-month-long school. Uh, they were in the same formations. They ate in the same chow hall, took the same classes, were in study groups. But nowhere before they got married did the two of them put on civilian attire, go off base, just the two of them, and do something. So they just were together all the time because they were living the same lifestyle, basically. Well, they're just hanging out, and they were 19 years old and lonely. Mm-hmm. And another, see, here, oh, another one of my big complaints. Bad, stupid priests. I cannot tell you when I do some of the, some of my, my cases what these priests were thinking. That was right? going to be my next question was how I, much of this is bad marriage prep and like the priests yeah, well, like marrying that, So this, this couple that got married, the, you know, didn't ever date it. They were six months through a nine-month school. Mm-hmm. They're 90 days from finishing. In the military, when you finish, you're going to go off to your assignment. Well, we want to stay together, but we can't get orders together unless we're married. So they go to the priest, uh, military chaplain, who I have, one of these days I'm going to hunt down. Um, and in 80 days from their request, they got married. Okay. Normally it's six months. Minimum. They never went to a pre cana conference. They never had a mentor couple. They took but never reviewed the focus, <clears throat> pardon me, which uh, <clears throat> is an inventory. Um, they had like two conversations with this priest. That's wow. about it. Now, Pre-Cana is not everything, but parallel issue. Since I came back from Japan in 1999, and I've been in and out of the country on other deployments, but in the last 23 years, less than three out of 10 couples who sit in my office and go, Father, we want to get married, actually get married. Wow. I was in a parish where the marriage uh, calendar book went from a book with a pen, with a book to a pencil, to a whiteboard, because Father Jesus Christ is probably going to get canceled. It was very simple. We'd have the initial meeting, very good conversation. I would have them take what's called the focus, filtering open cup communication. Is that like the multiple question thing? Yeah, 180 questions. How we know each other. I've heard about that from friends that got married. So they've taken it. We haven't discussed it. They've taken one of the four NFP classes. Mm -hmm. We have a second meeting where we start going in. There's already problems emerging. And then the third meeting, they call and postpone. And they postpone. And usually the guy comes to me like, Father, we're going to hold off for a bit. And about a month later, I get, oh, we're not going to get married. And I've told this young, other younger brother priest, when a couple sits down, when I would, he asked me when I was ready in 91, I had a lot of naive assumptions because, you know, I come from, come from a strong Catholic family. Two Catholics who want to get married, okay, let's make sure you get ready for marriage. Well, over the years, I've moved to when to weather. So when you sit down with me, should you get married? Should you marry this person now under these conditions? Um, which is, and so after enough, enough years, all priests develop reputations. And so in the previous parish, like I had very few couples in marriage separation and the other priests like, the couples don't request you. I said, and they know why, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then I've had other couples seek me out because yeah. they really wanted to be prepared. Well, I mean, I've had one couple, they're doing, they're having an incredible successful marriage over 15 years, a bunch of kids. But they both came from horrible families. Mm-hmm. They both came from a lot of problems and they were afraid of carrying them into their marriage. And so they want to address that. Part of our pre-cana was, I gave, I had a very good married couple uh, who had gone through some training and there's a program uh, several parishes use uh, on having couples being mentor couples. And this is something I think needs to be more and more done. So definitely... We want to make, we kind of want to cut it off at the pass 
make sure people are getting married know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems like the easiest way to make sure yeah. that you're not getting annulments down the road right. is to make sure that when you're going into it, that well, most of like everything possible that could be done yeah. has been done. Well, I, I drafted this is over 15 years ago. I have a pre Cana program. Okay. It begins in fourth grade. <laughs> First, you learn what it means to be a friend. Mm-hmm. You follow up in fifth grade. Learn how to be a, who's a real friend. Then sixth grade, if not earlier, how to have a friend of the opposite sex and start talking about chastity and modesty to 11 and 12 year olds, because guess what? The average boy is exposed to pornography at age nine. Yeah. Okay. So we need to be doing human formation from the very, I mean, hopefully people have priestly religious vocations, but the majority of people are going to get married. Let's lay this foundation early. I had Dr. Pat Fagan on the podcast at okay. one point, and he was talking about it even being even sooner because he was saying the best precana is your parents' marriage. Right. Like, exactly. hopefully, you have kids growing up in a thing where from birth they're seeing, right. or even in utero, they're still right. hearing the father, like they're seeing the good marriage modeled. But obviously, yeah. this is. And, see, and that's why I grew up with. So, you understand what I mean? My parents uh, had 45 years of beautiful marriage for the cancer took mom. Um, and one of eight kids, we all went through Catholic schools. We never missed mass. We all were altar boys, you know. Um, the, the uh, we went on family retreats. I mean, it, uh, Catholic faith was just what we did, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so when you grow up with that, and then you talk to these people who, you know, at best are nominally Catholic, mm-hmm. and they just somehow wandered into a marriage. But again, the numbers, and I, you have to contact the Can Law Society of America because they have all the data. Mm-hmm. You ever talked to anyone from CARA, the Center for Applied Research on the Apostolate? No, I haven't. You should, yeah. They're, they're the, so they were kind of wiggy back in the 80s and 90s. They got themselves some new directors years ago. They're physically at, but they're not part of Georgetown. Okay. And what they're doing is applying sociological research to everything. Wow. So, like, I remember getting a survey 10 years ago. They wrote every Dawson priest in America a three-page questionnaire. <laughs> and how is your priesthood going? You know, I mean, basically they're just... Trying to crunch, to the, you know, yeah. you know, simple. Uh, why do we have this little spate? Uh, and it's sad, but it's going on for of many priests ordained less than five, six, seven, eight years, leaving the priesthood. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what's going on there? Well, is it the bad formation, or, or you know, mm-hmm. what? You know, what's feeding it? And then, how can we fix it? Probably, right. I'm sure. Is yeah. that's and what so the they, goal they, is. So, Kara has done extensive research on marriage. Okay, they have all sorts of reports and some very good experts. I'm, been reading their stuff for decades. There's also the Marriage Project, which is out of uh, UVA. Uh, used to be out of Rutgers. One of the professors down there runs it. It's not Catholic, but it might as well be. Mm-hmm. And what this guy has been doing for over 25 years is crunching data on marriage. And wow. so he wrote this one digital book. And chapter two is entitled Cohabitation, Preparation for Divorce. Yeah. And that's another thing fitting, fitting into this. How many couples are living together? before they get married or technically maybe they're not living together, but they might as well be in there or physically active. Does this lay a good foundation for marriage? That was one thing I was wondering about if we have more annulments these days, because like obviously the fact that people just accept same sex unions and all of that, like the idea of marriage in today's just the secular idea, like everyday average Joe on the person idea of marriage is so messed up these days Mm -hmm. compared to where it was 60, 70 years ago that it's going to affect how Catholics perceive it in the world, even if they know like, even if you know, dot your I's, cross your T's, what marriage is, there's still, like, the but, secular thing that's going to affect a lot of people who don't have that kind of formation. Right. We have no Catholic culture. Yeah. Okay. The modern world, people travel. Mm-hmm. 
it was a very interesting experience when I went off to seminary in Philadelphia because I grew up in suburbia here in Fairfax County. And I get up to St. Charles there in Philadelphia. My classmates, especially from South Philadelphia there in the city, lived in neighborhoods where they had these townhouses, these very tight neighborhoods. And their cousin lived across the street and their grandmother was around the corner. And, you know, and 80% of the houses were all Catholics and they're all tightly around a church, mm-hmm. you know. And so you'd have festivals and kids, I mean, the majority of, again, in the 80, up to that point, the majority of the kids still in Philadelphia were going to Catholic schools. You know, you mm-hmm. could, well, even if you have a, a family that love each other, I'm going to have to go into college in Colorado. My job's going to take me to Montana or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. So people are, are disparately separated. Um, I mean, our diocese here in Arlington, Virginia, most of our parishes are inheritance parishes. We inherit people from other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up here, but very few people did. And so I didn't. And, and, and they bring the good, bad, and ugly with them mm-hmm. of their lives. Um, and the sad fact is the number of annulments actually is slowly going down because there's fewer people seeking them out because there's fewer people getting married. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's, you know, it just, and cause I, I know some larger priests who work on some larger tribunals that used to be very busy and mm-hmm. now they're less and less cause there's just either Basically, all the real bad marriages from the 70s through the 90s, early 2000s have either been resolved or they don't care. Mm-hmm. And since then, I mean, I hate to say this, but within my own family, most of my, uh, uh, all of my uh, adult nephews and nieces, even though my brothers did a great job raising them in the faith, have all just wandered away. Mm-hmm. So sad. And, you know, it's a painful thing to watch your, you know, your nephew get, I didn't go. You know, your nephew goes off and gets married in the backyard by a truck driver. He's also a preacher on the weekends. You know, he was raised Catholic. You know. um, so again, it's something that Kara has done some research in. We're going to see, I believe, within 10 years. So one of the things, the church has to be more honest about its numbers. Mm-hmm. We claim X number of Catholics in America. I would cut that in half. At least. And after that, it's going to fall down even faster. Well, there's even that statistic. I think it's that only one in three people believe that the Eucharist is Christ. I think so, there's that stuff. Well, well, see, what, that study was very interesting because the way they did it was a survey that was some in person, some on the phone, and some going through the mall with a clipboard. Oh, weird. Right? Now, are they standing in my parking lot after Mass asking people going to Mass about the real presence? Or Bubba, who I guess I'm Catholic, <laughs> you know. I mean, yeah. When I was on my first deployment, we were aboard the ships. We we're going heading over. We left. Uh, we left Connus and we're heading over to the Middle East. And where I was above decks, getting some sun. And one of my corporals was there. And we're going back and forth and um, talking about things of life. And at one point, I said, to him, "You know, uh, you really need." He, was, he has his dog tags on. He said, "You have Catholic on your dog tag." Well, I'm Catholic. I said, "No, you're not." Your grandmother's Catholic. Your mother used to be. You never got baptized. Mm. He saw being Catholic like this cultural thing. I yeah. said, if you're not baptized, you're not in the club. Just like now, you say, I'm Irish. I'm Catholic, right. even if you were never baptized. Right. <laughs> so, and we had this guy, he, he knew nothing of the Catholic faith, mm-hmm. but he had that put on his dog tags. I said, I can put Jedi Knight on my dog tags. That doesn't make me Obi-Wan Kenobi. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I actually had a Marine try to do that. Really? Well, and what? Because when you, you have first, you have your last name, first name, your blood type, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then the last thing is your religion. And and he went, I want to put down Jedi. No. <laughs> and the staff said, that's not on the list, okay? Because <laughs> yeah. what most of them are is no preference or no pref. Yeah. You know? I had special dog tags made. I got permission. Mine says Catholic priest. Mm-hmm. So in case anything happened, they knew. Yeah. Because well, you're not wearing a Roman collar. You're wearing a, a digital uniform being blown up. So. Yeah. But no, going back to the beginning of all this, on the process does exist. And my concern that is we are pushing uh, the grounds on psychological capacity, uh, incapacity uh, a little too far, I think. Again, uh, Mrs. Goldfrey uh, Howell does a wonderful job. This is not the type of book an average Catholic's ever going to read. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a doctoral tome. Uh, but this is what you get to do, read when you do graduate work. Um, but uh, the whole notion that um, the presumption is there's truly a marriage. Mm-hmm. I needed eggs, flour, water, yeast, salt, sugar to make a cake. Mm-hmm. A lot of Americans just dump some flour in, throw the whole egg in, dump a few other things, put it in a microwave, ching, and so yeah. they got a brick. You know. Uh, and again, also again, all the if two Catholics don't understand the true sense of marriage, why would two Protestants who got married on the beach in South Carolina, you know, in a ceremony they wrote themselves? Mm-hmm. You know, we have to assume we make we can make the general assumption it's a true because again, if both parties are Christian, we assume that to be sacramental. Okay, here's the if the but if both parties are not, then it's just a, a bond, and if both parties are unbaptized. That's just a common bond. So if you had two people who were baptized but not baptized Catholic, like they were two Presbyterians mm-hmm. or Methodists mm-hmm. who wrote their own vows, right? That's fine. So that's considered a marriage. Until, unless the less the unless there's something else going on. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the general assumption is, you know, the, you can get married. Like, I had this one case. It was a, again, they're always very sad, one form or another. Mm-hmm. Guys, marriage lasted less than two years. Uh, there was all sorts of problems. Um, been five. He's been divorced for five years. Uh, he's dating a Catholic girl. The Catholic girl basically put the whole relationship on hold on the second date when he found he had been married before. Said, "Listen, you know." I'm not going down the path. Like yes, yeah. you're a nice guy, but and so he came to talk to me, and, and I said, well, "Listen, um, I do not want anyone. I've done this my entire priesthood, especially with my Marines and sailors who are dating Catholic. Do not become a Catholic to make your girlfriend happy." Mm-hmm. That said, the Church will, if you wish, investigate this marriage. You don't have to be Catholic to have it investigated. No. Okay. He came to me because, and ultimately, he did become a Catholic. Mm-hmm. To, well, by the way, just it, it didn't matter particularly, but keep in mind he, they did get married on the beach on either North or South Carolina, and, and they did it on uh, and they kind of they had this wedding coordinator lady who had their own little she had little templates of how you could do your ceremony, and just it doesn't really and the couple was both black. Well, part of the ceremony, the minister held out a broom and they jumped over the broom, and I was explaining to him said, "Do you understand what you did?" I said, "Well." They said it was an old tradition. I said, yeah, for slaves. That's how slaves got married in the 18th and 19th century, so that when the owner wanted to sell one or the other, he would take a broom and brush the doorstep of your little cabin and then take your wife away and said, your marriage is done away with. And he looked at me and goes, I'm the most racist person in the world. I did a slave <laughs> wedding on myself. <laughs> um, But no, uh, so 
I do not know the numbers. Again, I would defer mm-hmm. to uh, the people who, uh, you know, the tribunals to have all this data. But my perception is we have a lot of our, ca- well, a lot of my cases are, I mean, oh, until very recently, I mean, very recently, where I'm actually looking into marriages that took place in Virginia that are Catholic. Mm-hmm. My first 30 years, they were all from other states, mm-hmm. not other countries. And like I said, over half were not Catholics, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, and just sorting those things out, yeah. you know, uh, people sometimes get married for the worst of reasons, mm-hmm. you know, uh, women are getting older, the clock is going, I got to find somebody, um, guys similarly, you know, wow, I'm getting up there. No tribunal that I'm aware of takes the process lightly. Mm-hmm. I can, I'm concerned that some do shuffle papers a little too much. I'm concerned that, you know, one of the biggest difficulties when I did cases for the military archdiocese is they're around the world. So it's near impossible for them to do an in-person hearing. Yeah. And so it then makes even a double paper chase. Uh, so I'm not criticizing them, but to me, you really need to have that dialogue and also allow the person themselves feel that the church is concerned about them to, you know, listen to their, their story. Um, but again, once it's been investigated and enough evidence has been brought forth by witnesses, and sometimes there's an examination by uh, mental health professionals if that is part of the whole situation, when the final decree comes, mm-hmm. that is a statement of the church that the sacrament did not exist. We have to trust that. Mm-hmm. Now, just like anything, um, what, what if all the witnesses lied? Okay, but that's what the judge knew. So then all the witnesses um, um, go to hell. And so, <laughs> yeah. So it's like basically, if you have a situation where both parties, yeah. to the best of their knowledge, right. everything they presented, as right. far as they know, is true. Right. Judge makes a decision, even if that decision was technically incorrect. Right. It's on the judge, right. not on the right. shoulders of the people who got but, the annulment, and you can trust that that's but true. I, but I've had I've had not a few cases where both the both petitioner and the respondent were seeking the case. Mm. They both knew they entered into a bad relationship. If you're in a marriage, or I guess if you realize in a relationship that you have grounds for annulment, like mm-hmm. you thought you were married, realize mm-hmm. that for some reason there was grounds for annulment, but you don't actually want to get divorced. Mm-hmm. Would you just go to the church and have your marriage blessed basically? So, like what would you have to do there to. Okay. Rephrase that for me. How, what, what, I guess like I'm thinking of like a situation. If you have a couple right. who are together, they thought they got married. They realized later on that, I don't know, maybe the girl was a fallen white Catholic. They got married in a Protestant marriage. And, so, that, so that's a lack of form. Yeah, so there's some reason, but they're not separated. They want to continue. They want to be married. So, Would they no, just oh, go to the church yeah, yeah. and so, renew their vows? Well, no, kind of. You know, part of it is you basically got to do the pre-canum. Right? Okay, but so you was, just, yeah, you you you're Catholic. You should have done this right. Uh, do you have a moral? It, part, I feel like you'd have a moral obligation to go through with that if you well, know. No, no, no. But part of it also is a lot of times because 45 years of crummy CCD puts us in where we are. I can't tell you the horror I've seen on faces sometimes. People in my office, I'm explaining them. Now, you got married outside the church. You can't go to confession or Holy Communion until we get this resolved. Mm-hmm. You you have to sit in the pew. Mm-hmm. For how long? This could be six to nine months, depending on the situation. It could be shorter. And it's not that they're arrogant. They're just ignorant. Yeah. Because we just started coming back to church a couple months ago. I've been going to communion. I said, well, no, you haven't. You've not received our Lord. You may have gone through it physically, but you are not spiritually disposed to receive. And if you do it knowledgeably, that's sacrilege. What you did was in, in ignorance. But. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times they're like, oh, my goodness, I got to get myself squared away. Um, 
So this is what is called a convalidation, bringing validity. Mm-hmm. So I have a civil bond. I now want to make it sacramental. Okay. So I get a copy of your civil marriage license. I get your baptism records. We do the focus thing again. We have other things. But part of it is first finding out why didn't you get married in the church? Mm-hmm. And in many cases, oh, and also I would say in the majority, at least in my priesthood, usually if both parties are Catholic or even one part, usually the Catholic party never got confirmed. Oh, interesting. So they so they got first communion, but so that's why, the, you know, it was abuela, grandma dragged them to church to a certain point and then, you know, but mom and dad didn't care. Yeah. And so a lot of times you have to get them through confirmation preparation. It's not an absolute requirement, but it's expected you be confirmed before you're married. Now, I've had situations where people have tied their lives into such knots and I had to untie them all. <laughs> and on a Saturday morning, I had a couple come in. We had a nice little mass. And in the mass, the bride got confirmed. The groom made first communion confirmation. They got their marriage vows done in the church. Then the the witnesses for the marriage stepped over 15 steps. And then we baptized all three of their children (laughs) and got everything (laughs) caught up. How many sacraments can you fit into one mass? (laughs) Now we're going to do a Eucharistic procession. Here's our, but you know, and you can tidy it all up. Yeah. You know? I'm doing several of those right now in my own parish. People who are coming back to the faith. Uh, the woman in question never got confirmed. They have a civil bond. Mm-hmm. But they've been together civilly for, you know, 14 years. They have kids. Yeah. So uh, part of it was just we've been mostly our talks. I mean, they, they've figured out the human element of marriage at that point. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, you know, how do we pray together? You know, what does it mean to sanctify our children's lives? Mm-hmm. Um the hard thing often is, especially when Catholics who have drifted away for many years and they come back and they never raised their children as Catholic, but now they're back in their 50s and 60s and their adult children and the grandchild, the adult child maybe been baptized, but not nothing else. Mm-hmm. And the grandchildren are unbaptized. And the, and the, oh, I want my children, my grandchildren baptized. Well, all you can do is encourage. Yeah. Because that ultimately, then it would yeah. be on the parents. It would right. be on the grandparents. So, but this is why we have, you know, I mean, more and more Protestants aren't Christians. Yeah. No, no, no. They're not baptized. Oh. Okay. I thought you meant they just didn't have Christian beliefs. No, 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 no. Okay. Like, they're just. No. I, I remember one, one five-week period. I had five different couples come in my parish. It was a Catholic girl and a Baptist guy. Unrelated. Boom, 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 boom. Every single Baptist guy was unbaptized. I said, you guys need to change the name of your church. Okay. <laughs> unbaptized. Yeah. You ever heard of McLean Bible Church, the big ones on the radio? It's no. up in Tyson. It's one of these okay. mega churches in Tyson's oh, wow. corner, 3,000 yeah. seats. About 10 years ago, the head minister said, we're not baptized anymore. Just take Jesus in your heart. Huh. It says in the Gospels, go out and baptize. <laughs> I guess there's a lot of other things it says yeah, in the yeah, Gospels yeah, that yeah, they yeah. ignore. So. Do this in remembrance <laughs> of me. This is my body. It says yeah. a lot of things. You know. But no, but. I think uh, the... Uh, I mean, I wish we didn't have to spend time on this, but it is important. No, it is. And yeah. it's for anyone watching or this, and I, I apologize as I was telling our host here, I have a face made for radio, so I shouldn't be on the <laughs> video. We're going to blot me out. We're just going to put a big disc here. But um, especially if it's a family member or a close friend and they and their marriage is broken and it's not going to get resolved. Not everyone should seek out an annulment. Have them talk to their priest. And again, 
I'm in a blessed diocese. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have some wonderful brother priests in this diocese. I look at the young guys that have been ordained, especially in the last seven, eight years. I mean, I went through seminary. You know, I just fogged a mirror and stayed in line. Nowadays, you have to pass all the classes. You have to be nice. You know, you know all these other requirements. We didn't have that back in the day. Mm-hmm. But no, so, I mean, I have a lot of good priests. And so I can at least say, you know, and for the younger priests who may be not experienced, okay, but he'll listen to your story. And like I did as a young priest many times, mm-hmm. like I've had when I was my first two years of priest, I had people come to me. And I really didn't see anything to go forward on. Yeah. I asked permission, may I go speak with another priest who has more experience, mm-hmm. who might see something. So it's like being a new doctor doing residency. Yeah. You know, I remember when I was newly ordained, a bunch of uh, people, oh, we should get in Father's line for confession. Tell them, I said, don't get in my line. Get him on senior. Monsignor Bradigan has been a priest for 57 years. You want to go to confession to him? <laughs> he knows what he's doing. I'm clueless. What's that joke that like, oh, priests have heard everything in confession. It's like, if it's a new priest, he hasn't. Right. Like, <laughs> oh, no. That's in your first couple of weeks as a priest. A lot of people are like, I'm going to get him while he's fresh and he doesn't know anything. <laughs> He'll give me an easy penance. You know, <laughs> He'll be nice. Yeah. 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 No, so, that's, but, but I think part of it is just if you know, at least talk to your parish priest and see what, what you should do. Also, big thing. This, I've actually preached on this. Um. If you're single, please don't dare date married people. Yeah. And if you're married, please don't date people not your spouse. It sounds silly, but if people didn't do those two things, I would have a lot less heartburn in my life. Yeah. No, no. Uh, there's one positive thing of the Catholic dating apps. They vetted whether someone is, the, the, the good ones, whether the person is free to get she be married. Mm-hmm. You know, do they, you know. They have no previous bonds or whatever. And let's wave a magic wand. Let's just say, oh, yeah, I was married civilly for a couple of years. The church declared that, you know, lack of form. Well, that person has a broken relationship in their past. Are they going to carry that same attitude? You know, again, you can go through the best ceremony. Mm-hmm. Do you understand what you're doing? It's very, very important. Um, in the old right, now you've used it in, in the new right, there's this beautiful exhortation prior to marriage. Beautiful. You can find it online. Very scriptural, uh, just very solid. And it talks about the whole notion of marriage being about sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to sacrifice for each other. And I as always tell people, the last thing you're ever going to do, the last thing you're ever going to take is a spouse. And then after that, it's all giving. Mm-hmm. I take you to be my husband and my wife. And after that, it's all about giving to each other and then to your children. That's beautiful. And when you see that, and something I especially impress upon men, that in marriage, they should never, ever apologize to their wife. They should never say they're sorry. They should say, please forgive me. Because when I say I'm sorry, I'm staying in power. When I say, please forgive me, I'm giving it over to you. We need men to be men, men to be husbands. If more men were real men, my life would be easier mm-hmm. because children would actually, I mean, we've, it, I, this is nothing originally. It's been proven sociologically the last 60 years. Growing up in a home with a father and mother is always going to lead to a better life than a single parenthood or yeah. a messed up life. Um, and I just think we have to uh, 
push back against a very pagan culture, uh, a culture where, um, I mean, divorce is made so easy now, mm-hmm. and in some cases, uh, so quick. Um, and that's where, again, we have to start the formation as children. Mm-hmm. You know, what is marriage about? When I've said that on here before, I've just we've had multiple generations now growing up with divorce being normalized. And so even if your parents stayed together, people in your family didn't mm-hmm. necessarily stay together. Friends' parents didn't necessarily right. stay together. Like, at least of my generation, I feel like there's a lot of people growing up having seen broken homes and oh, yeah. seeing all the problems that come out of it. And it's just being able to, like, heal from those wounds and being able to make sure that your marriage will last and having how, how important that is and that you're prepared for marriage and you've had the good marriage prep and you have all of the tools you need to be able to make your marriage last yeah. is so important. Yeah. And I just, I didn't, and last thing on annulments, um, there are some, there's many different type of conditions, uh, things where, for example, um, it's not actually an annulment, but actually a suppression. Uh, if both part, if you were in a marriage before and neither of you were baptized, mm-hmm. and it's a, it was very, it's very, it definitely was a bad marriage, but it's very difficult ascertaining facts because of time or it's in, they, they, you were from Bangladesh or you're in the United States now or something like that, mm-hmm. and you want to become a Catholic and marry a Catholic. It's called a privilege of the faith case, and so. It is better for you, citing St. Paul's epistles. Is this the Pauline exemption? Yeah, the Pauline, and then there's a Petrine. But okay. It is better for you to be in a Catholic sacramental bond than this dubious you know, pagan mm-hmm. relationship that you know, is not consistent. And so that unbaptized, in some cases not even civil, which is common law, marriage from before is actually dissolved. Interesting. And it said, you know, this is set aside because it's better to be married in the, in the church. Um, again, St. Paul has exhortation to widows that uh, maybe you should remarry if you're younger, but if you remarry, it must be in the faith. Yeah. And that's another thing. Um, if Why would a Catholic marry a non-Catholic? Well, I'll tell you the last marriage story. Remember in school when we learned about adding fractions? Yeah. What did you want? A high common denominator. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're going to spend the rest of life together and form a family, and you don't share the Catholic faith, then do you have a common denominator enough to be together? You know, and I think that's where we have to really impress upon our youth: if you're going to look for a spouse, look two pews over during Sunday mass. You know. Um, I just think we have to really be thinking about what what are you getting yourself into, why you're doing it, and then also when I go to confession, that's a moment of sacramental grace. When I receive Holy Communion, that's a moment of sacramental grace. Every day you fulfill your marriage vows, you show attention to your spouse, you assist them, you show physical affection. All those are grace moments. That's the sacrament acting. So as a married couple, you have multiple times a day. You can have sanctifying grace, but you have to know you're doing it and seek it out. So when you call your wife at 11.59 right before lunch and say, we need to pray the angels together over the phone, that's an act of love. 
God graciously blessed. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank so. you so much for joining us today, Father. Yeah. So. This has been really good to have a look at it from the perspective of someone who knows the process from the yeah. inside and also a parish priest who's yeah. been able to work with couples and have that perspective on marriage prep as well. So thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. And to all of our listeners, please like and subscribe. Check out the new ebooks we have coming out and keep on living the culture of life. God bless.